0: Welcome to our podcast, Tis But a Scratch Fact and Fiction About the Middle Ages.
1: Hello, I'm Carol Fletcher, and I'm your host for our new podcast, Tis But a Scratch Fact and Fiction About the Middle Ages. Let me introduce my co host, Dr. Richard Abels, who's a professor emeritus of the United States Naval Academy. Richard's a medieval historian who's written perhaps the best biography of Alfred the Great, the George Washington of England. Richard taught medieval history at the Naval Academy for 35 years and is especially interested in war and chivalry in the Middle Ages. Good morning, Dr. Abels. Good morning. I've just finished watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail.
0: Great movie, really, really funny.
1: Uh, and apps, and because of its realism, I assume it's something that you teach with all the time.
0: Actually, I do teach with it. Uh, at least I did teach with it before I retired. It's one of the few movies that I felt that I could actually show parts of in a medieval history class without cringing.
1: Oh, let me guess—the maniacal bunny and the holy hand grenade? Which is
0: absolutely historical. <laughs> holy hand grenade of Antioch was found during the first no. The uh, <laughs> what's what's great about Monty Python and the Holy Grail is one that it's really really funny. One of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And it's also a movie which for some reason has staying power with um, students. Uh, my students don't always remember, uh, they don't even know what Godfather was. And uh, if I say John Wayne, about half of the students will recognize the name John Wayne. But if I say Tis but a Scratch, all of a sudden I will have students quoted Monty Python, just a flesh wound. It's It's because it's so funny, and the reason why it's useful is because it uses tropes and preconceptions about the Middle Ages and inverts them. But what makes it strangely useful is that some of the inversions are actually closer to the historical reality than the Monty Python troupe, when they made us in 1975, would ever have thought.
1: Can you
0: give an example of that? Uh, Let's give the example of chivalry and the Black Knight. In in Monty Python, what you have are, you have send-ups of what people think chivalry was. And this Black Knight is a good example of it. When Arthur comes across the Black Knight, he's engaged in combat. What the Black Knight has done is what was called a pardon, which is a pass of arms, a knight standing at a crossroads, challenging anyone who came through the crossroads to joust with him. And this was historically true. And a it, recurrent
1: theme in the movie. Yeah,
0: and this happened um, largely in the 14th and 15th century, although it really had begun in the early 13th century. And it was a way of establishing one's reputation, reputation meant honor for the nobility, by showing that you were a better warrior than another knight. Now, that was historically true. The historical padams never were fights to the death. They were always jousts in which the victor would have the credit for having beaten the loser. It was also done on horseback, but because the Monty Python troop could not afford horses when they made this. <laughs> Just coconuts. They have coconuts instead. Now, the thing about it is that most people nowadays, if they think of chivalry, what they think of is a gentleman holding a door open for his date and then pulling out the chair. And if he's really a gentleman, pushing it back in when she sits down. Now, that really is part of of what chivalry became. In the 13, in the 12th and 13th centuries, chivalry was developing. It was the ethos of a nobility, a nobility that thought of itself as a warrior aristocracy. But it was also a nobility that was centered on courts. And so to be truly chivalrous, what you had to be was an accomplished courtier. You had to know how to be able to flirt with ladies without going too far. You had to be able to, uh, play some musical instruments and to do things like know the rules of the hunt, not just simply being able to kill the animals, but how to dress the animals. And I don't mean, but no, never mind. <laughs> but you don't know what I mean.
1: <laughs> well, where does the black knight <laughs> yeah, come in?
0: But that's the, that's all the accoutrements of chivalry. At the very heart of chivalry, was prowess, the ability to be able to fight effectively with the type of weapons that defined one as a knight, elite weapons, and so that meant lances, that swords, lance, lances, being able to have horsemanship, uh, swords, the type of weapons that peasants could never afford, and the type of weapons that you that required a lot of training for. Uh, if you take a look at a movie like Kingdom of Heaven, you have a blacksmith who manages to become a knight like that. That's not how it happened. Not so easy
1: to joust. Not
0: so easy to joust. And the reality of chivalry was that you were admired mostly because of prowess. Everything else was an add-on. But without prowess, you couldn't be chivalric. So... In an odd way, this is illustrated in the movie because King Arthur watches this brutal combat. And what makes it funny, I think, for modern audiences, they're expecting the type of uh, dueling that you would see in a 1930s Errol Flynn movie (laughs) in which the hero... Uh, disarms the villain and gives back the sword. Instead what you get is a type of combat where people are pounding each other on the head with the pommels of their swords and in one case kicking the other guy in the crotch. How could you even think of this as being chivalric? And then the culmination of the duel is the Black Knight throwing his sword and skewering his opponent by going right through the visor and through his head, and the opponent drops dead. And what does what does uh, King Arthur do? What he does is he goes over there, and he tries to recruit him for the round table. He says to him, you have proved yourself worthy, sir knight. Join me at Camelot. How has he proved himself worthy? He's just killed a man. That's what made him worthy. And the Kicker to the whole thing is the dismemberant. I mean, it's a scene that when I first saw it, I literally fell out of my chair laughing and I hated myself for it. Because how can you laugh at a person being dismembered in front of your very eyes? It's, first of all, it's comic bloodshed. But it's also the attitude of the black knight, Tis but a scratch. What do you mean? There's your all right on the ground. Just a flesh wound, I've had worse. You lie! You know, it's, it's so ridiculous. But it's the attitude that really is the attitude of chivalry. Courage, prowess, and ignoring reality.
1: <laughs> <laughs> were there any other parts of the movie that
0: were class-worthy? Oh, yeah. Um, and in strange ways. And again... I think it's because the Monty Python troupe didn't really... They didn't... Well, they made it in 75, and believe it or not, medieval history actually progresses over time. You would think that something that happened a thousand years ago, uh, that we would know it, but research continues, and we keep on having our idea of the Middle Ages change. There is a really funny scene in this. It's a scene in which author is encountering a peasant. And author says to the peasant, old woman. And the peasant says, I'm not a woman. I'm a man. Well, from behind you, look like a woman. Oh, okay. Old man. I'm 37. Well, I'm not old, which actually is funny because at 37, he would have been old. So and he then says, "You know, you could have called me by. My, I don't know your name. You never bothered to ask." The peasant's treating author as a social equal, and author is treating the peasant as a peasant. And author is talking to him in slow cadence because he obviously doesn't understand. And what the peasant answers is in the leftist rhetoric of a Oxford or Cambridge school in the nineteen sixties or nineteen seventies. The Oxford and Cambridge that the Monty Python troop, with the exception of Terry Gilliam, uh, all had attended, and so some as
1: medievalists, if I remember
0: well, Terry Terry Jones uh, was an English major at Oxford who specialized in medieval history. He loved Chaucer, and then he did a master's degree in medieval studies and has written two pretty good popular books on medieval people, as well as hosting. uh, I think it was a BBC series called Medieval People, which is really worth seeing.
1: So he knew what he was parodying. He
0: knew what he was parodying. And in the case of the peasant, in Medieval People, the series, he also knew that what he had done in Monty Python and the Holy Grail was oddly close to historical reality. In Medieval People, what he does is he takes us to the meeting, um, a committee meeting, a council meeting, of the owners of property in a village, trying to decide on what they're when they're going to plant crops, and that actually was historically true back then in many villages, you had free peasants and a free town, a free village
1: a the, collective just like a
0: collective just the like Monty that
1: Python movie
0: because. Agriculture was, in these villages, a collective endeavor. You had to gather together in order to do the planting, the plowing, and the harvesting. The decision of when to plant, when to harvest, and what to plant was a corporate decision. It didn't mean there was equality. Um, there was a lot of different strata in a village. It was based upon wealth more than anything else. And in many of these villages, the free villages, you wouldn't have seen a lord. You wouldn't even have seen the lord's reed, reeve. The lord gained his money not by living there. The lord got his money by taking a share of the crop. He was the man who was responsible for planting out the village, for giving the peasants their Seed and their agricultural equipment, the plow, the oxen. And in return, annually, you get a share of the profits. In other words, they were sharecroppers. Now, the reason you have villages like this, again, is because something that people don't realize about the Middle Ages, that it had a growing population. Uh, between about the year 1100 and the year 1300, the population of Western Europe pretty much Doubled and the growth in population meant that there were more people than there was land to cultivate. And the result of that was a deforestation, a cutting down forests and bringing land that was forest land now under cultivation, making them into fields. That was done so much throughout medieval France in the 13th and 14th, well, 13th century that Medieval France in the 13th century had less forests, had fewer trees than it has today. Well, the plague must have been helpful. The plague was helpful for that. (laughs) But in order to attract peasants to go to land, new land, you had to give them something. And what the lords gave these peasants were their freedom from serfdom and gave them the ability to be able to determine pretty much their own lives as long as they paid something in return. So, no, they didn't have radical uh, uh, syndicalist um, (laughs) communes, but they did have collective decision-making. And so that really was true. And the scenes with the plague? Uh, Bring Out Your Dead. Bring Out Your Dead is wonderful. It's also historically true in the 14th century. And the thing about Monty Python, the Holy Grail is that it is medieval. It says 932 AD at the beginning has nothing to do with 932 AD. The costumes, the armor is uh, 13th century armor. Bring out your dead is black death. It's all over the place. Um, but the black death, which struck Western Europe between 13, 47 and 1351 by the best estimates of historian killed off a minimum, a minimum of a quarter of the population. Wow. And probably, probably a third of the population in some places, mainly cities. The pop, the population was radical. Paris in those four years seems to have lost half of its population. Same thing with Florence. And if you were in a monastery, uh, the death toll could go up to 80%. And that's really simply because it's a communicable disease uh, communicated by fleas. And when fleas were on one host, they would jump to another host. And if you were in a crowded uh, place, you would end up having the fleas. The fleas would bite you. You would have being injected with the uh, bacteria and voila. You have a case of the plague. So bring out your dead was true. You would have carts that would come through town, loaded up with dead, who would then be deposited in mass graves with a layer. And then they would put soil over that layer, then put another layer down. And it was the only way you could deal with that much death. Wow, puts COVID in perspective. And the thing about, I'm not dead yet. Well, one of the interesting things about the Black Death, besides the fact that it was so brutal, is that the Black Death and the recurring plagues, because every generation after that, there was a sort of mini Black Death until the last big incident was in 1667 <laughs> in Europe, but there was an outbreak in India in 1895. But what you the way of dealing with it was by sealing people who had the plague up and just having them stay in place this that is seems we get, very modern well the word quarantine is an invention of the plague and it comes from the the response to the plague in venice in 1377 the town leaders the doge and his council uh, put out an edict that if anyone came down with the plague, they would be sealed in their house for 40 days. Quarantine comes from the Italian word quaranta, but which means 40. But germ theory. Well, they, because they believed, they didn't have germ theory. And so there was lots of tr- tried explanations for what the plague was. But one of the favorite ones, the one that was scientific, was that plague was communicated by odors. And so, if you were near somebody who had the plague and you were smelling in the odors, you were liable to get the plague. Now, one of the ways of dealing that with that is by masking. Now, we have masks, but they had larger masks because they needed to fill it with flowers, with good smelling stuff, so that it would freshen the air and prevent the bad odors from infecting you.
1: Interesting. Okay, to move from something a little depressing um, to something less so, how about the scene with Lancelot coming upon a castle full of nubile women? That Um, was
0: fiction. It has an element, again, of historical reality. And not reality, historical fiction. We have to make a distinction. Much of what chivalry was, was a literary device. And it was a literary device which was supposed to give, not rules, but give conventions of behavior for the aristocracy. But it was also a literature that was aimed toward a court that was filled with unmarried young knights who were household knights. A troubadour to be able to make a living had to please the Lord and had to be popular with these audiences. And what you did, what he, they did, was they gave wish fulfillment to these young knights. And what do the young knights want? They want land, and they want women. And the romances give them both. In so many of the romances, you have knights, errant, wandering around, coming across a castle which has a female lord, uh, either a widow or an heiress, He's welcomed in. The castle is being threatened by something or other. And the lady of the castle needs him to protect her, protect the castle. He does. And she throws herself at him. Usually throws herself at him before he protects as a way of giving him incentive to protect. Uh, It's always funny about medieval romances is that men fall so crazily in love That in one medieval romance, uh, a knight falls so much in love while he's on board a ship with the woman that he's bringing to marry his lord that he thinks he has seasickness (laughs) because he wants to throw up all the time. (laughs) So the knights fall madly in love, but the females are really practical in these medieval, medieval romances. They know they need protection. And they need protection from the greatest night they possibly have. You have in the, in this scene, sort of these, it sort of recalls that type of idea. And what I really found funny is I recently reread a book that I loved when I was a kid, Don Quixote. I was a very strange kid and I really loved Don Quixote. I reread it. And what I realized when I was rereading it, is that when Cervantes was writing this in the early 17th century and he was writing about all of these chivalric tropes in the full blown chivalric romances that drove Don Quixote crazy. Among the tropes was wherever Don Quixote goes and he thinks that he's in a castle. It could be an inn or it could be a lord's court as he does in one case. He always assumes that all of the women whom he thinks to be the ladies and the damsels are madly in love with him. And we're talking about a middle-aged man who is incredibly gaunt, who has lost half of his teeth and has to be hideous. (laughs) And in at least one case where a Counting Countess finds Don Quixote's madness to be so amusing I mean, he's a court jester that they play a lord with it and they have a damsel who professes her love for Don Quixote. Don Quixote accepts it completely, but he has to remain faithful to Dulcinea, <laughs> whom he's never actually seen.
1: <laughs> okay, well, you've convinced me there's uh, things to learn from watching the movies about the Middle Ages. So I'm off to watch Braveheart.
0: Oh, my God. Okay, Braveheart. It's a... Fun movie, action-packed, and it has virtually nothing to do with history. Mm. Uh, It became really popular in Scotland for obvious reasons. Uh, For some reason, Mel Gibson managed to make movies in which he had the English as villains in all of the movies. And so he had Braveheart for Scotland. He had uh, a movie about the American Revolution. Uh, He started off with Gallipoli. I mean, in every case, the English are the bad guys, and English-speaking people are the victims of the English. He must have something against the English. But in Braveheart, what you have is a story, historical story, of William Wallace, who's one of the heroes of Scottish independence. And William Wallace was a real person. William Wallace won a couple of battles. And in Braveheart, you have, in fact, one of the battles that's illustrated One of his great victories, the Battle of Stirling Bridge. Unfortunately, the Battle of Stirling Bridge, in the movie, there's no bridge. And the way that he won the battle, which was essentially ambushing an English army when half of it had crossed the bridge, you don't have that either. What you have is what was called a Scottish Schiltron, which is a formation in which you have pikes. And those really were true. You had formations with foot soldiers who were trained enough to be able to withstand a charge of knights with pikes planted in the ground. Now the point about that, no pun intended, was that horses are not stupid enough to run into sharp pointy objects. So if knights were charging a group of men who had sharp pointy objects pointed at the horse by the time the horse came to it, the horse would be down to a trot and the horse would try everything to be able to run around rather than into it. <laughs> now, they would only run into it if they had no choice and they would have no choice if they saw the, po- the pointy objects too late. So what do you have in Braveheart? You have him wait to have the pikes put out to the very last minute. <laughs> I-, I hate to say this, but a dying horse running into a group of men holding a pike, that group of men get crushed. <laughs> so even in terms of the exciting military um, battle scenes, it's bull. But maybe worse than that is that it uses a myth of the Middle Ages, the myth of the right of the First knight, which never existed in the Middle Ages, it was something that was invented in the early modern period and uh, as a criticism of of lascivious clergy, believe it or not. And then in the 18th century, time like Sad becomes a trope for 18th century pornography. But it wasn't a case in the Middle Ages because marriage was sanctioned by the church. And so you didn't have the floweration of a virgin wife by a lord. That just didn't happen. You had a lot of rape. No, no doubt about that. You just didn't have legal rape in that sense. <laughs> Not only that, but the romance in Braveheart after his wife is killed, the romance is between him and the young Isabella, the Isabella of France, the princess who is going to marry Edward the Second, the homosexual prince who's going who's going to become King Edward the Second, and it's really ironic because the implication is that the royal line of england is actually going to be william wallace's royal line and all of that that's really neat there's only one problem with that um, number of problems but for me the greatest problem was that when william wallace was disemboweled in 1305 isabella was just turning 10 years old (laughs) and she was still in paris (laughs) now long distance romances are possible but they're not really very conducive to producing ears, especially <laughs> if you're talking about a 10-year-old girl.
1: Okay, you've convinced me. I'll stick to Monty Python and I'll skip Braveheart when I want to learn about the skip. Middle
0: Ages. Let me explain to you why it is that medieval movies are bad, just generally.
1: Okay, well, you know what? We're out of time, but we're going to pick that up on our next podcast next week. Thanks so much for being here today.
0: My pleasure.